Welcome, and thank you for joining Latter-day Stone Catchers, where we believe the gospel is love-centered and stones should be caught and never thrown. My name is Jeff, and whether you're joining through YouTube or the podcast, I'm glad you're here. This week, we're going to finish off the book of Acts with Acts chapters 22 through 28. Paul is a little bit all over the place in these chapters, testifying before different councils in different places, and there's some great stories in the last few chapters regarding a shipwreck and some things that happen around that and on the island where Paul and those on the ship are shipwrecked. So we'll get to those at the end. But let's jump right into Acts chapter 22. I'm going to summarize chapters 22 and 23 pretty quickly, and then we'll start diving in more deeply in Acts chapter 24. So in Acts chapter 22, Paul is in Jerusalem, and he essentially retells his story. He tells the people there that he was once a persecutor of those who believed in Jesus Christ, but he had this amazing experience on the road to Damascus where he actually heard Jesus Christ. Paul becomes blind. He goes to Damascus. He finds Ananias, who's a believer there, who blesses Paul. Paul's sight is restored and he goes on his missions now teaching for Jesus Christ rather than persecuting those who believe in him. So he recounts this story to those in Jerusalem and the audience does not like this. We read in verse 22 that they lifted up their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for it is not fit that he should live. And as they cried out and cast off their clothes and threw dust into the air, the chief captain commanded him to be brought into the castle and bade that he should be examined by scourging, that he might know wherefore they cried so against him. So they planned to bind, beat, or scourge Paul, but Paul has something up his sleeve. They're preparing to do this. It says in verse 25 that he is bound, and the centurion stood by, and right before, it sounds like Paul is going to start receiving this scourging, he says at the end of verse 25, is it lawful for you to scourge a man that is a Roman and uncondemned? He reveals to this centurion who's about to begin beating Paul that he himself is actually a Roman citizen, therefore making what the centurion was about to do against the law. There's no mention of this prior to this verse. Apparently Paul was saving it for the right moment. When the centurion learned this, he realized that they should not be beating him, he should not be scourged, and they really needed to stop. In fact, he was worried about what might happen, the fact that they'd even bound Paul and were about to do this. So, Paul escapes this beating or scourging by virtue of his Roman citizenship, a privilege that most believers in Jesus Christ did not enjoy at this time. It tells us in verse 29 that straightway they departed from him, and then in verse 30, it says, On the morrow, because he would have known the certainty wherefore he was accused of the Jews, he loosed him from his bands and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. So the Romans turned Paul back over to the Jewish people. And at this point, Ananias, the high priest, a different Ananias than helped Paul regain his sight, commands those that are around, and this is in chapter 23, verse 2, that Paul should be smitten on the mouth. And the way Paul gets out of this one is that present at this council or this audience are both Pharisees and Sadducees, and they differ in several things that they believe in, but one critical one is the resurrection. Pharisees believe in the resurrection, Sadducees do not. So in verse, so in verse 6 we read that when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, that there's both of these groups there, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, 
of the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am called in question. So he essentially proclaims, I am a Pharisee. I believe in the resurrection. Why is it that I'm being questioned because of my belief in the resurrection? He's essentially appealing to the other Pharisees there saying, hey, look, I'm on your side. So why is this happening to me? I believe in the same thing you do. I believe in the resurrection. And what happens next is probably exactly what Paul was hoping. It tells us when he had so said, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the multitude was divided. The Sadducees saying there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees saying that there is a resurrection and there are angels and spirit. So amongst all of this commotion, apparently it gets pretty crazy because the chief captain or Roman comes and gets Paul and takes him back to the castle. Apparently, although the Romans weren't willing to do the scourging themselves, they also didn't want something to happen to him as part of this other council, at least not until some sort of verdict had been reached. And then in verse 11, it tells us Paul has this experience that night where the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. I have to imagine that this came as a great comfort to Paul. Things were probably feeling pretty dire. Although he'd avoided severe punishment from both the Romans by telling them he was a Roman citizen, and then at least for now in front of this council, this Sanhedrin of the Pharisees and the Sadducees by provoking them regarding their disagreements on points of doctrine, he had to be feeling like this type of luck was eventually going to run out. So I have to imagine, as I said, that this came as a great comfort to Paul. The Lord stood by him, tells him to be of good cheer, because just like he's testified in Jerusalem, he must testify in Rome. We learn in the next verses that some of the Jewish people there, it says banded together or essentially made a pact or a promise with each other that they were going to fast until Paul was killed. The Romans get wind of this and they do not want to let that happen to a Roman citizen. And so they make sure that Paul gets out of the city safely and they take him before Felix. And that's where we pick up in chapter 24 of Acts. It tells us in verse 1 that after five days, Ananias the high priest and others descended. In other words, things sort of maybe calmed down or diffused a little bit over the five days. Although there are still those particular individuals that want to kill Paul, they come to wherever Paul is being held to be part of this trial that will happen for Paul. And they essentially present their accusations in chapter 24, verses 2 through 8. And it's very similar to the other things that they have said about him. We won't read all of the verses, but there are a few things that I want to point out. In verse 5, um, and again, this, these are the accusations from kind of the religious institution towards Paul. It says, We have found this man a pestilent fellow and a mover of sedition. Or in other translations, it would be called an agitator among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. In other words, referring to his testifying of Jesus of Nazareth. And then in verse 6, he says, Who also hath gone about to profane the temple, whom we took and would have judged according to our law, but the chief captain came and saved him. So that really sums up the accusations from Ananias, the high priest, against Paul. He doesn't like that he is a pestilent fellow, a mover of sedition, or an agitator and a ringleader 
of this group that believes in Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ's resurrection, and also that he has profaned the temple. That seems to be a constant theme for those who are receiving accusations from the religious institution. They don't like when things are done or said about the temple that they don't agree with. It's interesting how consistent that is. Jesus, of course, dealt with that in his life, and that's part of what led to the animosity between him and the religious institution. The same thing happened to Stephen, and now it's happening to Paul. They don't like when they feel like the temple has been profaned. So those who are accusing Paul finish what they're saying. It tells us in verse 9, the Jews also assented, saying that these things were so. Then Paul, after that the governor had beckoned unto him to speak, answered. So now we're going to get Paul's answer, and it goes from verse 10 all the way to verse 21. And he begins his defense in verse 10 by telling him that he will cheerfully answer for himself. And I like that he begins that way, that he will cheerfully answer. He tells them in the next few verses that it's been 12 days since they found him in Jerusalem in the temple worshiping. He tells them in verse 12 that he wasn't disputing with any person or, or causing any kind of commotion either in the temple or in the synagogues, which I thought was a little bit interesting because if you remember, in every place he would go to teach about Jesus Christ, he would always start in the synagogue. And it seemed like that often caused uh, a little bit of contention there. There were some who believed him and some who didn't, and oftentimes some contention surrounded around there. But he tells them at least this time he went to Jerusalem when he was in the temple, he wasn't causing any problems. He was just there participating in ritual washing, which is what you would expect a devout Jewish person to do after he had just traveled all around into lands outside of Jerusalem and then came back. Ritual, ritual washing would need to be done to sort of wash themselves clean from that journey. So he tells them, I wasn't causing any problems and nobody can say that I was. And then what Paul says next is really powerful to me. He says in chapter 24, verse 14, But this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. And I love that verse for a few reasons. The first one, just that he says, after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers. Paul's dealing with the situation where his understanding has been expanded now to include Jesus Christ. And although those around him consider what he is doing, how he understands God, and how he is worshiping, they consider it to be heresy, he says, this is how I worship God. And although I am certainly not Paul, that's something that I feel like I can relate to, and I'm sure others of you who listen to this podcast can relate to as well. Sometimes our understanding of God and our Heavenly Parents has expanded in a way that others might consider heresy, and that can be such a difficult situation to be in, where you feel like you have found some absolutely beautiful truths, and you would love to and try to share those, but unfortunately, some of those people around you consider those things to be heresy. So that was something that just really struck me when I was reading this, this chapter. And then what he says next is really interesting. He says, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. 
Now, the reason this caught my eye is because if you remember from some previous episodes and some previous chapters, Paul has recently been teaching people who are Gentiles. He has been teaching that those who are Gentiles and are baptized don't need to be circumcised. So he's teaching things that go against what's in the law and the prophets. So when I read this, that he says, I believe all things which are written in the law and the prophets, because remember the law and the prophets is the Hebrew Bible. And as part of the things that Paul is teaching, he's teaching Gentiles, he's teaching them that they don't have to subject themselves to circumcision. So how do we reconcile Paul here saying that he believes everything in the law and the prophets with the things that he has been teaching that don't actually match up to the law and the prophets, like circumcision and dietary laws and other things that are really important to the religion that Paul still apparently considers himself to belong to. He told them that he's a Pharisee, he still worships in the temple, and so these are things that are important to him and he's telling them here that he still believes in them so how do we reconcile that with him teaching basically opposite things to other people or not requiring those things of other people and it reminded me of what he writes in his letter to the Romans and I'm really excited to study this letter next in Come Follow Me but we're going to talk about just a little bit of it today because I think it explains perfectly Paul's position here where he says I believe everything in the law and the prophets but we know, having just read the chapters before this, that sometimes he teaches things or doesn't require Gentile converts to do all the things written in the Law and the Prophets. So if we turn to Romans chapter 14, I think we get a perfect answer for why Paul feels like he can say this, that he believes everything in the Law and the Prophets, and reconcile that to what he's been doing on his mission to the Gentiles. And Romans chapter 14, I will tell you, is one of my favorite chapters in all of the Pauline epistles because of these truths that he teaches here. And it should be noted that this letter that Paul writes to the Romans came towards the end of his ministry and really probably towards the end of his life. So probably some time passed between this statement as part of his defense and this letter to the Romans. But in either case, it helps us to reconcile what Paul means when he says that. Starting in chapter 14, verse 3, he first talks about uh, dietary laws, which as we know, were a big deal to the Jewish people and to Paul. He says, Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth, for God received him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. And then in verse 5, he touches on the Sabbath day. One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. I love that last statement. So he's saying, whether you follow the dietary laws or don't follow them, you shouldn't be judging the other group. If you follow them, don't judge the ones that don't follow them. If you don't follow them, don't judge the group that does. And same thing for the Sabbath day. Whether it's Sunday, Saturday, or you esteem every day to be alike, just be fully persuaded in your own mind. And then uh, let's jump to verses 9 through 10. He says, For to this end Christ died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Essentially, so he could be the Lord of everyone. Verse 10 says, But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set at naught thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. 
he's reminding the Romans in this epistle and us that it is not our place to judge. And then I think uh, the application of these teachings really comes next. Starting in verse 13, he says, Let us not therefore judge one another any more, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. I know and I'm persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. So he's telling us, I'm persuaded by my belief in Jesus Christ that there actually isn't anything unclean, which would be preposterous to a Jewish audience because the Torah includes so much about what is unclean and what is clean. Paul is saying he's persuaded by his belief in Jesus there is nothing unclean of itself. But if we esteem something to be unclean, then to us it is unclean. Verse 15 he says, But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. And I feel like we could insert anything, any commandment, anything else into in the place of with thy meat. So destroy not him with whatever for whom Christ died. It isn't our place to judge and to use Paul's word, destroy other people because of a commandment that we find particularly fulfilling or something that we have decided is unclean and we need to avoid because according to Paul, Christ died for those people as well. Destroy not them with thy meat for whom Christ died. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. He's telling them the kingdom of God isn't about what's clean and what's unclean. It's about righteousness or other translations translate that as justice. It's about justice, peace, and joy. So we should pursue the things that bring those about rather than trying to judge people for which commandments they're following or not following. In verse 18, he continues, For he that is in these things, justice, peace, and joy, serveth Christ, is acceptable to God, and approved of men. Let us therefore follow after things which make for peace, and things wherewith one may edify one another. Then in verse 22, it kind of sums it up great. Hast thou faith? Have it to thyself before God. Going back to what he said before, if we esteem something unclean, then to us it is unclean. But it isn't for us to put that on somebody else. I'm reminded of what Peter said to the council of those who believed in Jesus Christ when he was talking to them about not requiring the Gentile converts to undergo circumcision. Peter told them it wasn't for them to place that burden upon those Gentile converts. The Jewish people who believed in Christ still thought that circumcision was important, and so they could follow it. But it wasn't for them to place that burden on these Gentile converts. And Paul is teaching something very similar here. And to summarize this idea, I want to share a reading from one of my favorite books called Grace is Not God's Backup Plan by Adam S. Miller. If you have time, I'd recommend ordering this book before we study the book of Romans because it puts it in a way that's so easy to understand. Uh, the subtitle is an urgent paraphrase of Paul's letter to the Romans. So Adam Miller, who wrote books like Letter to a Young Mormon or Original Grace, one of my personal favorites, paraphrased the book of Romans in, way, in a way that's easy for us to understand and apply to things that are going on today 
in our life. So I want to read from chapter 14 his summary of, or his paraphrase of verses 10 through 23. And I'll put a link to this in the show notes or the description below. So if you want to pick it up, you can. It's really great. So here's verses 10 through 23. Stop then accusing your fellow Christians. Stop despising what's different from you. Everyone will stand before God on Judgment Day. Everyone's knee will bow and everyone's tongue will confess. Everyone will have to account for themselves. Judge no more. If you're desperate to use your keen sense of judgment, use it on yourself. Stop clogging up the path of faith with your ridiculous barricades. Jesus himself has persuaded me that nothing is in itself unclean. Our habits and traditions teach us to prefer one thing over another. But if your habits and traditions aren't helping others connect with God's grace, then they're an obstacle to love. Don't let your traditions spurn someone Jesus died to save. Don't let something that's good for you make others curse you on their way out the door. God's kingdom isn't about food or clothing or days of the week. It's about justice, peace, and joy. It's about living infused with the Spirit. Encourage this, and you'll be loved by God and thanked by your neighbors. Find and follow the way of peace. Build each other up. Don't tear each other down. Don't build a hedge around the law. In themselves, these things don't matter. What you eat, what you drink, what you wear, everything is pure. They only become evil when you insist on offense. If it makes your fellow Christians stumble, let it go. Decide what to do on the basis of faith. Trust God to guide you. Whatever you do, do it in faith. If it's not done in faith, it's sin. So you could hear a lot of those same phrases or quotes or ideas in that paraphrase, but I think it's just written in such a powerful way. Again, that's from Adam S. Miller's book, Grace is Not God's Backup Plan, and I'll put a link to it in the description and the show notes. If you remember, we're talking about this because we're trying to reconcile what Paul tells um, or what Paul says as part of his defense. He tells them that he believes in everything that's in the law and the prophets. But clearly, based on his teaching the Gentiles and not requiring them to subject themselves to circumcision or dietary laws or those sorts of things, he believes it in a different way. And then he tells them in verse 16, And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscious void of offense toward God and toward men. Kind of going back to what he was saying in that letter to the Romans. If you have faith in something, great, have it for yourself. Or if you consider something unclean, to you it is unclean, but it's not for you to place that burden on somebody else. So Paul ends his defense, uh, and then Felix, the person who essentially he was presenting his defense to, essentially tells Paul to go his way and that he needs to think about this for a little bit. But unfortunately, after two years, Felix has still not made a decision. And then Felix is replaced by a new person named Festus. It tells us in verse 27 that Felix, for whatever reason, says he was willing to shew the Jews a pleasure, or in other words, do the Jewish people a favor. He left Paul bound. So even after two years, Felix did not have Paul freed or make a decision in Paul's case and just left him there. So now it's up to Festus to make some sort of a decision. 
we learn in verse 25 that Festus went to Jerusalem, talked to these people who had accused Paul. Apparently, they're still holding this grudge and want Paul to be held accountable for what they view as offenses or what they called agitation or sedition and then profaning the temple. So Festus, in hearing these people complain about these things they were still holding against Paul, tells them in verse 5, come with me and testify against him. It says in verse 7, and when he was come, or when Paul was come, the Jews which came down from Jerusalem stood round about and laid many and grievous complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. And he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews, neither against the temple, nor yet against Caesar have I offended anything at all. In verse 9, Festus asks Paul, well, will you go to Jerusalem to be tried for this? Paul reminds Festus that he's a Roman citizen and he will not do that. And then Paul in verse 10 says, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews have I done no wrong as thou very well knowest. So he essentially demands to be taken to Rome to be judged there. And as a Roman citizen, he demands that he be taken to Rome and judged there. Festus at this point really isn't sure what to do. He tells this council about the situation and he's telling them that there were certain questions against Paul about the Jews' religion and about Jesus, which was dead, and Paul was saying was alive. And then in verse 20, Festus says, because I doubted of such manner of questions, or since I essentially had no idea what they were talking about, I asked him whether he'd go to Jerusalem and be judged there, but Paul demanded to be heard by Caesar. And then Agrippa, who's part of this group that Festus is talking to, says, I want to hear Paul, I want to hear Paul for myself. And they decide that that will happen the next day. And so Paul will present his defense again. Remember, two years later, um, two years ago he talked to Felix. Now he's going to present his defense before Agrippa. And just like the way that he started his defense in front of Felix, Paul tells him in chapter 26, verse 2, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day. And we don't need to go through the entire story again, but he recounts, again, his story that we've become familiar with, that he was persecuting the Jews, heard the voice of Jesus of Nazareth on the way to Damascus, was converted and started teaching about Jesus Christ. After he did that, he came back to Jerusalem, went to the temple, and since that day when he was found in the temple participating in this ritual washing, the Jews have sought to kill him. If we read the last three verses of his defense, this is what it says. For these causes, the Jews caught me in the temple and went about to kill me. Having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day, witnessing both to small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come, that Christ should suffer and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead and should shew light unto the people and to the Gentiles. He tells them, I'm not teaching anything that's not in the prophets and the law. The way Paul understands the Hebrew Bible now, it testifies of Jesus Christ. And you can almost sense a little bit of frustration. Although he acknowledges that he has been helped by God, that he's been in the same situation for years and years. He's waited two years since he last talked to somebody about this. And now two years later, he's having to do the same thing again. And he just can't understand why he's being judged for teaching the scriptures as he understands them after this amazing experience where Jesus Christ comes to him. Festus' response is a little bit comical. 
in verse 24, it says, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning doth make thee mad. Paul responds, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak forth the words of truth and soberness. He asks, he asks King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. And then King Agrippa gives this response that's become a little bit famous. Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. So Agrippa doesn't come to believe in Jesus Christ. I don't think we can say whether or not that was actually Paul's purpose in sharing this story. It's more like a legal defense of just probably wanting to be let go so he can continue his ministry. But King Agrippa says, I can't see anything that Paul has done that would result in him needing to be imprisoned or put to death. So let's send him to Rome. And at that time, the quickest way to get to Rome was by boat. So Paul and others get on a boat and they set voyage so that they can eventually end up in Rome. They have a whole bunch of stops along the way that lists out at the beginning of chapter 27. We're not gonna go through all of that detail. Paul does tell them at one point in verse 10, sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with hurt and much damage, not only of the lading and ship, but also of our lives. It was getting very late in the year towards the time and it was not safe for people to be sailing on these waters. And Paul is warning them, great harm is going to come. But they didn't believe him and they decide to go on the voyage anyway. Of course, as we can expect, they encounter some serious storms, just like Paul has said but he does comfort them at some point. He tells them after they've been enduring the storm for days and days, he says in verse 22, and now I exhort you to be of good cheer. Paul likes that phrase. For there shall be no loss of any man's life among you, but of the ship. For there stood by me this night the angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve, saying, Fear not, Paul, thou must be brought before Caesar, and lo, God hath given thee all them that sail with thee. Wherefore, sirs, be of good cheer, for I believe God that it shall be even as it was told me. So although Paul had originally been told that this voyage would come at cost of not only the ship and its cargo, but even people's lives, apparently an angel visited him later after they'd been encountering storms for days and days to tell them that although the ship will be lost, no lives will be lost. So he's telling them to be of good cheer. The storms sort of continue, but then something really cool happens. Although they've really essentially lost control of the ship, Paul comes to them in verse 33 and says, while the day was coming on, Paul besought them all to take meat, saying, this day is the 14th day that ye have tarried and continued fasting, having, having taken nothing. Wherefore, I pray you to take some meat, for this is for your health, and there shall be not an hair fall from the head of any of you. That doesn't sound all that extraordinary, except that Paul is taking care of those people on this ship, which definitely includes Romans, but may also include some other Jewish people, as well as some other believers in Jesus Christ. But what it says next, I think, is the cool part. It says, And when he had thus spoken, he, Paul, took bread and gave thanks to God in presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Then were they all of good cheer, and they also took some meat. 
So Paul gathers everybody up on the ship, or at least everybody who is willing to, tells them it's been 14 days since you've eaten anything. We've been enduring these difficult storms. Nobody's going to lose their life. Yes, the ship will be lost, but come sit down, rest. This will be good for you. And then the language that's next is really reminiscent of the Last Supper or the sacrament. I'll read it again. It says, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. And they were all of good cheer. That feels like a powerful and special moment on this ship. They've been sailing through or lost control of their ship through storms for days and days and days. If they weren't worried at Paul's first warning that ship, cargo, and lives would be lost, they're certainly worried at this point after having endured the storms for so long. Maybe they'd started to doubt Paul saying that no life would be lost, especially since that conflicted with his first warning. But he gathers them up, he tells them to just rest, have some food, and then essentially it sounds like shares the sacrament with them. And because of that, they were of good cheer. Unfortunately, it didn't save the ship. <laughs> it says that they shipwrecked on an island, but everybody made it off the ship safely and made it to land. And there was something powerful in that story for me where sometimes our story doesn't go as planned. Sometimes the ship we're on gets shipwrecked. Whether we were told that that ship would be safe or that that ship would, in fact, shipwreck, as Paul warned, for whatever reason, sometimes our story just doesn't work out the way we were expecting. But in those moments, even if the ship we're on gets shipwrecked, if during those tumultuous moments in life we focus on Jesus Christ, not the ship we're on, not the cargo we're carrying, but Jesus Christ, his infinite love, our Heavenly Parents' infinite mercy, then we can be of good cheer. Along with that, I want to mention that if you are going through something difficult, I also highly encourage you to seek professional help. Although we can find peace in Jesus Christ and true comfort and love and mercy, it's also very important for us to seek professional help when we need it. So if you're even thinking that that might be something that you might benefit from, I would encourage you to pursue that. I love the lesson here that even if the ship we're on gets shipwrecked, if we focus on Jesus Christ, that core principle, then we can be of good cheer. So they land on this island and there's some pretty neat things that happen on this island. Um, I'll summarize them fairly quickly, but I do want to touch on them because they're neat stories. They come across the people on this island. It says in verse 2, and I'm going to tell you the King James Version isn't great here. It says, The barbarous people shewed us no little kindness, for they kindled a fire and received us everyone because of the present rain and because of the cold. But if you read the NRSV, it's easier to understand and doesn't use such offensive language. It says, the natives showed us unusual kindness. Since it had begun to rain and was cold, they kindled the fire and welcomed all of us around it. A little easier to understand and just telling us that the people that helped them were those who were originally on the island. 
what happens next is that Paul gets bitten by a viper. He comes out with this snake essentially hanging off of his hand. Everybody there is worried, says it's a bad omen, said that he was apparently supposed to die in the shipwreck, but because he didn't, the universe had conspired to bring this viper upon him and kill him. But then Paul just shakes it off of his hand and there is no harm. So then they look at him and they think that he is a god. He goes from being considered a murderer who's worthy of death and should have been killed by the sea to being considered a god. He, of course, tells them that's not the case, but they take him to the father of the chief man of the island, whose name is Publius. And apparently his father was sick with a fever and dysentery. It tells us in verse 8 that Paul entered in and prayed and lays hands on him and healed him. Verse 9 tells us, So when this was done, others also which had diseases in the island came and were healed. When I was reading about this, I couldn't help but think my previous understanding of God and the universe would have told me that this was the plan from the beginning, that all of this, all of these events sort of transpired to get Paul to this island so that he could perform these healings and help these people. And some people might still understand the story that way, and I think that that's great. The way I understand God and, you might say, control over you, over the universe at this point, I would say that while this wasn't the plan from the beginning, that because this is where Paul ended up, there was some good there that he could do. I wouldn't think that it was the plan from the beginning, and others will disagree with me, and that's okay. But I just don't think that all of these events leading up to this would have been the plan, the ultimate destination for Paul from the very beginning. Instead, choices were made, people listened or didn't listen. Paul ended up on this island, and wherever he ends up, wherever any of us end up, it's an opportunity to do good. I think sometimes in our church we can get the idea that our life has a perfect plan that's mapped out all the way from birth to death and all of the major milestones in between. We can all think of them right now, but I just don't think that that's the way that life works. As I said, I'm sure there are some of you that do and that's okay. I'm just sharing what I believe. I think that life is full of choices, full of different opportunities, and full of infinite possibilities of ways that we can do good. And what our heavenly parents ask is that no matter what situation we're in, no matter what ship we were on that has wrecked, no matter what island we find ourselves on, no matter what snake we've been bitten by, no matter what has happened, no matter what bad choices others or us or good choices others or us have made that have landed us to the exact moment that we are in right now, there are opportunities for us to lift others, to love others all around us, even at this moment. I don't think our Heavenly Parents expect our lives to follow a prescribed plan all the way through. I do think that our Heavenly Parents hope that no matter where life takes us, we will look around, see opportunities to love and lift others, and take advantage of those opportunities. Think about Paul. This cannot have been where he expected to be and was probably miles and miles away from where he wanted to be. He wanted to be out 
teaching people about Jesus Christ. The only reason he's in this situation is because for some reason he can't understand. People who don't understand his beliefs want him to be in trouble and now he's on his way to Rome to try and defend himself against these accusations. He tried to warn the people that this was a bad time to take this voyage, but they still went. And now he's in a situation completely different from what he ever would have planned, what he ever would have wanted, and one that he really had no control over either. He tried to warn people and they didn't listen. But in this situation, he finds somebody who is vastly different from himself and helps them. And because of that, he has the opportunity to help many, many others in this same place. That is how we should approach life. I know for me personally, my faith journey, my life journey has taken me to places that I never would have expected, that I never would have anticipated, and potentially even places that I never would have wanted 15 or 20 years ago. But I could not be happier with where I am in life and in my faith. And what I hope I can do is, like Paul, take advantage of the opportunities that are around me to lift and love others, especially those who are much different than I am. And I hope all of you will understand and feel that regardless of where you are, you can love and lift other people. And that if that's what you're doing, I don't think that we can mess up our Heavenly Parents plan for us. Thank you so much for listening or watching. Remember, your Heavenly Parents love you. I love you. Catch stones. Don't throw them. We'll see you next time. If you're listening on the podcast and enjoy what you hear, I would greatly appreciate if you could share this podcast with your friends and family or on social media, as well as leave a review and rating on whatever platform you listen to. Those two things can go a long way in helping others know that they can trust Latter-day Stonecatchers as part of their Come Follow Me and Gospel Study. Thanks again for listening.